Hello. At the centre of the sun, this very moment, millions of tonnes of hydrogen are being transformed into helium, releasing a huge amount of energy. The physical process by which this occurs is known as nuclear fusion, and the prospects of using this miraculous property of the natural world to generate clean power on Earth has preoccupied scientists and entrepreneurs for over 60 years. Yet, despite huge international collaboration and investment, no terrestrial nuclear fusion device has yet been able to produce more energy than it consumes. This notwithstanding, the progress over this period has been immense, and the 21st century will most likely see the first economically viable fusion power plant. With me to discuss the past, present and future of nuclear fusion research are Dr Justin Ball, a recently graduated DFL student in theoretical physics from Worcester College and now a postdoc at EPFL, Valerian Chen, a DFL student at Merton College, also in theoretical physics, and Jason Parisi, a DFL student at Merton College, also in theoretical physics. Thank you very much for joining me. Perhaps, just for laymen like myself, we could start with a description of what the basic process of nuclear fusion is. Um, Jason, do you fancy taking it up for us? Sure. So, fusion is the process whereby you take very light atomic nuclei and you literally just fuse them, uh, fuse them together. So, for example, the sun takes hydrogen nuclei and it fuses them together and in that process you produce energy. It is the opposite of fission, whereby in fission, instead of having two very light nuclei and fusing them together, uh, fission is whereby you have a very heavy, unstable nucleus and you launch a, a neutron at it. The uh, fissionable nucleus will absorb the neutron and split into two small units and that will release energy as well. The reason that fusion releases energy is actually because the two separate, uh, let's say for example I'm talking about hydrogen fusion, the two separate um, hydrogen nuclei are actually heavier than the new heavier nucleus that it will create after it fusions. And because energy has to be consumed... So, just, just, so yeah. the individual hydrogen yes. is lighter than the individual helium. So they're they heavier. But, no, but, but combined they're heavier. Yes, that's yeah, sorry, correct. Yeah. Exactly. So actually in 1920, Francis Aston discovered that actually two hydrogen nuclei separately, uh, but if you weigh them together, it's heavier than the, the new helium guy. And that means through Einstein's very famous equation, e equals mc squared, uh, you can actually see that that difference in mass will release energy. Uh, in some form, uh, and usually that's in the form of kinetic energy through some particle moving off. Okay, thank you, that, that was very clear. And so I guess these are two very different kinds of nuclear processes, one of which we've been able for 60 years to use for producing energy. Valerian, could you describe to us how a fission plant would differ from a, from a fusion plant? What are the main principles of a fission plant? Shall, shall, we, shall we stick to that? So very loosely speaking, what you have in a, in a fission plant is a cell where you have all this you know, fissile material, the fuel in it, and you control the rate of reaction by putting in rods to slow it down. So when, if you didn't have the rods and you just had this material, they would decay spontaneously, creating some neutrons, and they create, they create more than one neutron. Um, for example, uranium would decay. Some several neutrons will come out, and this, these neutrons have quite a bit of energy, they hit into other nuclei and they too decay, so it's like a domino effect, and this runs away and you have an explosion, which you don't want, you want something, controlled release of power. So what you do is you put in um, rods, so you put in like basically a wall, which <laughs> is the uh, fashionable thing to talk about these days, <laughs> uh, to slow down the, the, the rate of reaction, 
to an extent that you still have, it still runs, that you still create lots of heat, but it doesn't go out of control. And this can be done, you know, in, at room temperature, just in the plant as it is. And of course, this energy then boils water and drives turbine. But everything after that has been known since the Industrial Revolution, pretty much. <laughs> How you create the fire is, is the only difference here. Right? <laughs> it's coal or efficient power. Now, with fusion, what you need is you need these lighter elements to come close enough to join together to make become heavier elements and therefore release some of their energy. And in order for them to come close enough, you need to have a lot of energy to begin with. Because you see, in the previous case, these neutrons had no charge, so they could approach the nucleus positively charged and not feel any force at all. So they, they don't care about the, you know, the, the charge of the nucleus, fly into the nucleus and things happen. Now you have two protons, they both have charged, they are both positively charged. How are you going to get them to stick together or touch each other as you were? So you need a lot of energy and a lot of energy means a large temperature. And if you want to reach these temperatures, in fact, if you want to do it efficiently on, the, on, on in power plant scales, this temperature has to be hotter than the center of the sun. And, and that's the challenge. Now, the great thing about fusion is that, unlike fission, which is quite strange, you have all the fuel at once. So it means that if it goes mad, it burns, all of it, and all the energy is released at once. You have a few years' worth of energy just released at once. In fusion, on the other hand, you pump the fuel, the gas in, so it's more like a normal way of creating energy that you store to get fuel outside, you put it in the chamber when you need it. So the moment you cut the, the supply, then the reaction stops and it won't explode. Okay, so what I'm sort of sensing is that with a fission power plant, you'll have this very unstable material that will decay and release heat, and the, the challenge which was overcome some years ago was to control that reaction and stop it all reacting at once. But you're telling me that with a fusion power plant, the difficulty is to get the material hot enough for the nuclear process to happen at all. Yes. Is this yep. saying? So, Justin, what sort of temperatures are we talking about? We said hotter than the centre of the sun, but what, what sort of numbers do these mean? Yeah, so this is around 150 million degrees Celsius or Fahrenheit. Really, the, the scale doesn't matter too much at these insane temperatures. So the material, this hydrogen material, that's not a gas at that temperature. What, what's the name for Oh, no, so um, if you start off with a solid material, say solid hydrogen, um, you know you have lots of bonds connecting um, the different atoms and molecules. And then as you heat it up, eventually you start to break the inner molecule bonds to produce a liquid. Heat it up more, you completely break all of these bonds and you have a gas of just um, different molecules flying around in the air. And then if you heat it up even more, eventually you can break the connection of the nuclei in your atoms with the electrons that are orbiting around your atom. Um, and so when the thermal energy that's in your system, so you, know, you have all these atoms flying around, when there's so much energy in the atoms flying around um, that it is a similar energy to how much it takes to, li to liberate an electron, then you can get a, a plasma, which is a different state of matter, um, where you have free-flying nuclei, and you have free electrons that are going their own independent ways and, and functioning independently. So the hydrogen is in a plasma state? Yes, so at, at these temperatures, like in the sun, um, the fuel is in a plasma state, where you have free electrons and free, free nuclei. So does it no longer make sense to talk about an individual atom in that sense? You have nuclei and you have electrons, but you no longer have... Correct, yeah. Atoms. So let's talk a little bit about the, the history of nuclear Fusion. You mentioned that in 1920 there was this uh, discovery of this difference in mass, that the two hydrogens summed together separately were heavier than the helium they would create when they combined. 
what further theoretical developments happened in the in the twenties and thirties? Uh, Jason, do you want to? Sure. Um, so in 1920, Aston actually figured out that there was this change uh, in mass when you fusioned things together. Uh, that was actually a serendipitous discovery. It wasn't, wasn't intentional, intentional, which is always kind of fun in science that often happens. And then I think later that year, Rutherford took that together and said, wow, actually, it's not gravity that heats up the sun. It's not, uh, it's not meteors striking the surface. It's not definitely not chemical. It's actually fusion that powers the sun. Until that, that point of Rutherford, people felt that it was ordinary chemical reactions that we might see on Earth that was powering the sun. Why was there this change? What paradox couldn't be explained mm-hmm. by it just being chemical reactions fueling the sun? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. So um, it was actually back in the 1860s that people really started to think about how old is the sun. One of the main reasons for that is because uh, biologists such as Darwin were actually coming, starting to say, actually, uh, how old is the Earth? Uh, and looking at, like, they did very kind of back-of-envelope calculations just to see, like, how long does it take for this kind of level of complexity, like human beings or mammals or whatever, to evolve. Uh, and they came up with, like, hundreds of millions of years. Now, if you take the most energetic chemical reaction you can imagine, and you know the mass of the sun, we, we people knew the mass of the sun back in the 1850s, that's pretty easy to figure out. Then, so you take the most energetic chemical reaction, the sun with its mass, which is about 10 to the 30 kilograms, and its current power output would only last a few thousand years, which is crazy if you think about it. So um, that even to like the most devout Christians at the time, like Lord Kelvin, uh, he was like, no way can it be chemical reactions that's powering it. Um, so there are two other key theories that people thought about. The, the first was that um, the sun would uh, kind of contract under its own gravity and that would heat it up a little bit, and that would cause it to radiate. And by continuously doing that, you would get a lifetime of about 30 million years uh, for the sun. Um, and also another theory was that like loads of meteors and asteroids were kind of con- consistently striking the surface of the sun, heating up. And that also gave tens of millions of years. How- so lots of physicists were kind of satisfied with that to some extent. Kelvin really liked the meteoric theory, for example. Um, but biologists and uh, geologists who were looking at rocks and how they were were not satisfied. Um, so there was this tension between, um, hang on, the physics is telling us the sun is only tens of millions of years old, but the geologists and biologists are telling us this, the earth uh, is at least hundreds of millions of years old. And obviously everyone assumed that the sun has to be at least as old as the earth, and therefore there was the tension there. That's really interesting. Um, after the 1920s, people had felt that the nuclear fusion process was powering the sun. Uh, Justin, am I right that in the 1930s there was more progress made about the actual details of the nuclear processes? Yeah, that's correct. So there was a, a famous paper by uh, Hans Bethe where he laid out all of the detailed fusion reactions that were going on. So from starting with um, just fusing normal hydrogen and then on to form progressively heavier elements, right? And so all of these processes from starting with hydrogen and ending with elements like oxygen and carbon were mapped out the exact process by which stars assemble these heavier elements. Maybe we could nail down, for my own understanding at least, why is it a good idea to collide these very small elements, whereas in fission we're splitting apart very big elements? Yeah, so it gets back to what was said earlier that if, if you combine really small elements, you can produce an atom that, that weighs less than the, the mass of what you initially put in to produce energy. Um, and so the really light elements are easiest 
because they have the, the lowest electric charge. So basically you're, you're trying to get these two nuclei to stick together, um, but the electric repulsion, you know, the, the positive charges repel each other. Um, and so the lightest elements have the lowest electric charge, so it's, it's easiest to bring them together. And the most stable nuclei are in nickel simply because anything bigger wants to break into smaller, um, smaller nuclei because the electrostatic repulsion in the nucleus is high. Anything smaller wants to become bigger because it wants to have more other nucleons around it such that the strong nuclear force can stabilize it. In a way, this is like groups of friends. So when you are two people in a room, you know, when there are two of you in a room, you need to overcome the awkwardness, which is like the repulsion due to <laughs> from two different uh, nucleus nuclei to come close enough to have a conversation and start the bonds of friendship. On the other hand, if the group is big, it's very difficult to coordinate things, people get left out, and so the awkwardness dominates and the group breaks up into smaller groups. Uh, and eventually you settle on the number which is between four and eight, I feel. But uh, <laughs> for, for nuclei, it's, this, this, this number is bigger. Um, and so the same thing happens with... Uh, elements that they, every, everybody wants to become nickel and are in the end. Okay, so this is pre-war, but of course, they uh, well documented that there was lots of nuclear research that was done in the war, culminating in the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs, which were fission bombs. But you were telling me earlier, there's a really quite interesting story about what happened after the war, when people tried to, to use these for, for the military uses, but also for power. Justin, you were telling me about this particular Argentinian scientist and this story to do with, with fusion. Yeah, yeah. So right after the war, there was a lot of optimism about nuclear power. And so people knew about fusion. And immediately following the war, there was a lot of work on employing fusion in nuclear weapons. So during the war, we had used fission weapons, um, but there, we wanted to apply it to um, apply fusion to weapons. Um, and there wasn't initially a lot of investigation into using fusion to produce electricity for peaceful means. Um, but there's a, a famous um, event now where an Argentinian scientist named Ronald Richter, um, you know, in this kind of mad scientist lab on an island um, in Argentina, um, claimed to have achieved fusion and claimed that he was going to bring unlimited energy to the world. And this caught the, the eye of the president of Argentina who, who made this you know, grand declaration. And so naturally it was picked up by all sorts of papers around the world um, making headlines which caught the attention of physicists, especially um, Spitzer, who was a plasma physicist working at Princeton at the time. And so he immediately saw through, saw through this and saw that this method wouldn't work, but it prompted the question, like, can you do this? And what are, what are the best ways to do it? Um, so he immediately started thinking about ways to produce fusion energy, um, and several years later founded the famous Princeton Plasma Physics Lab and invented one of the uh, most promising devices that we still use today called the Stellarator. Jason, this research that was being done after the war, was this done as a larger global collaboration as things are being done now or was it slightly different? So uh, actually fusion energy research was classified uh, and in the United States it was called Project Matterhorn uh, as far as I understand. However, as we can see nowadays, the problem of controlled thermonuclear fusion reactions to generate electricity is a lot harder than that of fission. Um, and so the scientists realized that like, even the collective power of the United States and the Soviet Union individually isn't going to be able to solve this problem quickly. 
So uh, there's a very famous uh, fusion conference called the Geneva Conference where physicists from the Soviet Union, the United States, the UK and a few other places got together and actually compared what kind of theory they were using, what kind of devices they were using. Um, and there were some really interesting things. Like uh, what was, I think, really interesting was not the differences, but actually the similarities between the approaches they were taking. And that was really quite promising and it, to some extent, and it showed that actually everyone was thinking in the same way about things. And yeah, so to this day, fusion research, at least for energy purposes, for peaceful energy purposes, uh, has always been an area in which international collaboration has thrived, particularly between, uh, at least during the Cold War, between the, the Russians and the Americans. Well, and is this related to the fact that, unlike nuclear fission, nuclear fusion by itself does not lead to a nuclear bomb? Yeah, that's that's a great point. Um, so actually, uh, every single um, nuclear weapon that exists today has at least a fission core, which means that uh, you need to have you need to understand fission before you can make a nuclear weapon. On the other hand, if you just had a fusion plant, you can't make a pure fusion weapon because you would need to understand the fissile material uh, as well before that to make the weapon. Okay, so it's about time to bite the bullet. As a human species, we've been trying to do this for 60 years, in which time we've got to the moon, we've invented nuclear fission reactors, we've invented the internet, blah, 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 and we still don't have a nuclear fusion plant that produces viable electricity. Valerian, what are the challenges that mean that this has been a very hard problem? Well, as we've discussed, um, to not get fusion to happen, you need really high temperatures in the core of the device where the nuclei are fusing, as it were. However, at the edge of your reactor, the part which faces the wall, you don't want it to be particularly hot because it's going to melt the material. And you have something like hundreds of million, or 100 million degrees in the middle and materials that we know today, as far as I understand, a few thousand degrees is pretty much the limit. So you have massive temperature differences between the two. And the question is, you know, how do you maintain this? How do you make the middle hotter and the outside you know, just as cool as before? And there are various physics and technology problems to it. So of course, on the technology side, you want a material which doesn't melt. And on the physics side, you want to understand the way heat is transported out from the inside of the tokamak. From the inside of... Well, see, so that is the first time I've heard the word in the podcast, but it's going to be a very important word. So we should... Uh... So uh, a tokamak is? So, uh, so a tokamak is one of the um, leading contenders for fusion power today. And the way it works is that you have a donut, basically something which is shaped like a donut, and you put magnetic coils on the outside. And what these magnetic coils do is they, they hold the plasma and confine it, as, as we say, in place. So this prevents plasma from touching the wall, um, loosely speaking. And so you're essentially keeping it suspended there, away from everything else. And then you try to heat it up. Uh, and so because the plasma is charged, it will be contained by the magnetic field. Indeed. And because charged particles, um, as it turns out, follow the field lines. So if you engineer a field lines in a certain way, the particles will not go from one field line to another. Well, it does happen, but it's, it's slow, right, compared to moving along the field lines. So you try to keep this... You have various field lines and you keep the particles um, from moving outwards. And in fact, using magnetic fields to confine uh, energy 
it's, this is basically an insulation tower. You have, you're insulating your plasma so the heat doesn't move out, right? And this insulation, if I remember correctly, is about 10,000 times better than the towers on a on, on spaceship, which prevents the crew from frying during re-entry. Mm. Well, of course, you know, a spaceship can't have large magnetic fields to fight <laughs> okay. that, but you can do this in a token mark. Um, okay, so just going to Justin, there are these great challenges of containing the material and getting it to a high enough temperature, but th there's one more thing that's required to get fusion to happen. I remember you telling me about these three things that were important. Yeah, so to get a, you know, a viable fusion power plant to get um, your fuel such that it can produce a lot of fusion power, you need three things. You need enough particles, right, because you want to combine the particles to fuse. You need them to be hot enough, so you need to achieve really high temperatures, because otherwise they'll just bounce off of each other without sticking. And then you need um, confinement, so you need density, temperature, and confinement. Um, so again, enough particles that are hot enough and you need to keep them in the same place for long enough. And if you can do these three things sufficiently well, then no matter what scheme you use, you're going you're gonna to be good, right? You, you'll produce fusion power from this. And there's this way of measuring progress of the scientific community on all of these three goals. Yeah, so, so this, the, the uh, multiplication of density times temperature times confinement is referred to in, in fusion as the triple product. Um, and this is kind of the, the fundamental metric for performance of our devices. And so if you look at where we were in the 1950s when research was first starting, and then look at how the triple product of our devices changed with time, um, you'll see that between the 50s and the, the 90s or so, I guess, um, fusion was progressing extremely rapidly. It actually outperformed the famous Moore's Law. So basically the the triple product was increasing faster than computer performance was increasing, which is really impressive. Uh, that is astonishing. You mentioned up until the 90s, so has there been a slight slowdown in progress, at least in terms of this triple product measure? Uh, yes and no. So actually, an interesting point is that uh, we've only ever actually ran the kind of fuel that we expect will power the first generation fusion reactors, which is deuterium and tritium. These are two isotopes of hydrogen. We've only ran uh, this in two separate tokamaks, one in a tokamak called TFTR in Princeton, uh, and one at a tokamak called JET in the UK, actually six miles down the road from here. So we've only actually had a few chances to properly verify this. All the rest of the tokamaks use deuterium deuterium usually. Now, actually, even though you don't get fusion power out of that or very much, you can kind of say, okay, I'm making a, a deuterium-deuterium run in this tokamak, but what would it look like if it were deuterium-tritium? Because the triple product is used for deuterium-tritium. And we have got some tokamaks that have actually improved quite substantially in the past 10 years, although it is true that progress has slowed, uh, and that's because basically we're all working on uh, ITER, which we'll talk about later, I'm sure, which is the world's largest tokamak. And when that comes online, I think the progress will continue in the triple product quite substantially. Yeah, so to kind of jump in, yeah, so progress seems to have kind of stalled in the 1990s, but it's kind of because the entire community is, is contributing to this one large experiment either, and so, you know, this, this experiment takes a long time to build, so we're hopeful that if we wait, then we'll get a payoff and we'll see a, a very big improvement in either, but this is an experiment, so... So, I mean, please forgive me if this is not a good analogy, but would you say that for the nuclear fusion community, the building of ITER is 
analogous to what the building of, say, the LHC was to the um, particle physics community. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Well, so we, we, let's let's talk about it now. So ETA is a very very large tokamak nuclear fusion device that is currently being built in, in the south of France. If yes. I'm correct. Yeah. And it has to be so big uh, because there's a certain issue that I think is related to all of your research. So I don't know who wants to come in. Valera, do you want to tell me why ETA has to be so big or why it's been made so big? Well, just I think, to me at least, the simplest way to understand this is about surface area to volume ratio. So if you have lots of surface area you know, and for the same volume, you're going to lose heat very quickly. But if you increase the volume, then you have less surface area per unit volume, and then you lose heat more slowly. And this is just the idea behind, this is the simplest idea behind ether, that you make it bigger, then the surface area per unit volume is smaller, you lose heat less quickly. And again, because it is bigger, the middle is further, further in. The main thing really is it takes longer time for the energy from the middle to escape. And longer time for the particles in the middle to escape, you keep them there. And so that you have these reactions happening. Yeah. So it, it, it's improving this confinement issue that you were saying, one of these yeah. three main important issues. So, so maybe we should uh, briefly talk about what the big challenge is for fusion and where we are right now. Okay, sure. Um, so we've talked about, you know, we need these insane temperatures to get fusion to happen. And so it's kind of incredible, but this has actually already been achieved. Um, so in... A number of devices around the world, we can routinely create the conditions necessary for fusion. The problem, however, is in order to heat the fuel um, to attain these crazy temperatures, we have to use a lot of power. And so right now, the devices, we have to put in a whole lot more power in order to keep the plasma hot than we actually get out in fusion power. And so this, this is a problem because, you know, you can't generate electricity if, you know, you have to put in 100 megawatts of heating to get one megawatt of fusion power out, right? And so what ITER is designed to ex explore is, uh, you know, if, if we can create a device that can more efficiently achieve the temperatures that we need. So if, if we can get a lot of fusion power out without having to put as much energy in. One of the remarkable things about fusion reactions, as I understand it from, from reading your notes in talking to you earlier, is that it has potential to be self-sustaining. Valerian, could you explain to us what that means? Self-sustaining means you don't have to put in additional energy to get it burning. For example, if you put, uh, you know, if you want to have a barbecue, you initially have to heat it up with some with a lighter, with some starters to get the charcoal to a high enough temperature. When the charcoal is at a high enough temperature, it starts to burn, right? And that creates, that means it breaks down, and when it breaks down, creates more energy and this energy then breaks down further and you don't have to you know put in throw in anything more or you put a light on it and it burns for the rest of your dinner hopefully so that is what we seek to achieve with fusion that you put in enough energy at the start and then you have a bit of energy left running the magnets and what you create is enough to run everything and you have to take in more power from the grid that is self-sustaining so in a way there are different regimes you're talking about here right a self-sustaining reaction is not a power plant. It has to be self-sustaining and it has to generate more energy to put into the grid. Um, so therefore, it's, it's, you have to, it has to be more self-sustaining. But self-sustaining fusion reactor is a milestone we look at. So what are the milestones we have here? So first, you have a reaction. For example, let's consider you know, the usual deuterium, tritium, or you know, two, two different types of hydrogen coming together to give you energy. 
Okay, so to get them to stick together, you need to put in energy in the form of you know, heating your coils. The first level of uh, the first milestone is break even, which means you need to produce more energy from the reactions than the amount of energy you're putting in. And this is doable in the foreseeable future without much improvement, we believe. Um, however, not all of this energy created goes back into the plasma, right? Some of this is when you have deuterium-tritium fusion, most of the energy is released in the neutron, which leaves the plasma. So the energy which remains in the plasma to continue heating it up is less. So the next milestone is that you need to be able to generate enough energy which remains in the plasma to continue heating it up such that it doesn't cool down. However, you also need energy to run the coils, to run the other things in the power plant. And this is the next level that you want to be able to have it to generate enough energy such that you're not taking energy from the grid. And after that, you then want to create enough energy that you are making that you are a power plant rather than a scientific experiment, so that you can you can generate energy to use for other applications. And ultimately, we want this energy to be cheap enough to compare to compete with the other sources of energy on the market. Otherwise, it won't. People won't take it up. <laughs> so there are these different stages. So you first stage, which we're not quite at yet, but you think that we will soon, is to have more energy released in the reaction than you put in yeah. then the second stage is to have more energy remaining in the plasma than you put in because some of the energy yeah. is left in the neutron yeah. and then you have the third stage of having enough energy to run all the cores and all the plants staying in the plasma then you have the fourth <laughs> stage even of that being having surplus energy to then send to the grid and use actually the power plant then you in fact have a four and a half stage or a fifth stage of actually having this entire process being economically viable. <laughs> and we should, I should just say that EAT is probably going to get to the fourth, the fourth stage. Really? Yes. Third or fourth. Third. That's how it's I mean, it's, it's an experiment, but that's yeah. the goal. Is, is that Good, yeah. Okay. You all, in various respects, research turbulence in these machines. Jason, could you tell us a bit about how turbulence comes up in, in nuclear fusion and why it's currently a problem for getting these reactions to work as well as we'd like? Absolutely. So, um, uh, turbulence, so yeah, turbulence is one of the biggest problems in fusion, and it's actually the reason why we've made our fusion reactors so big. The problem is, is that turbulence takes uh, a particle that is in the core where it fusions, uh, and it transports it out rapidly to the edge where it won't fusion. Um, and this decreases our confinement time, um, which, as Justin says, that's one of the components of this triple product. Uh, so you would imagine if you, know, if you put stuff in the core and it's transported out quickly, um, you'll get less fusion power. So specifically uh, in fusion reactors, the, one of the main drives, if not the main drive um, for turbulence, is something called the ion temperature gradient. So basically all that means is when I go from an ion temperature, so an ion, remember, is the nuclei, uh, in my plasma, if I go from basically room temperature or a couple of thousand degrees to hundreds of million degrees in the core, uh, and that happens over maybe like one or two meters, uh, I think uh, ETA is supposed to have a kind of radius of about two meters. If that happens in two meters, then basically what that causes is that causes a lot of eddies, a lot of turbulent eddies to form. And basically this has been one of the key challenges of fusion over the past 30 years or so, and people have tried to understand, okay, we have this turbulence, um, how can we suppress it, and actually, can we use it to improve the confinement performance uh, of our reactor? So, in, in a way, this is like if you ha you're in a, sh in a, if a shop, and the shop is in the middle of winter, and it's cold outside, it's hot on the inside, 
you have turbulent eddies bringing the hot air from inside the shop into the cold air outside and the cold air outside in again. So these are the turbulent eddies and the way, one of the ways you, you solve this is, well, put a door, but you can't, also if you, if you don't want a door, you have this hot curtain of air at, the, at just at the entrance and this curtain of air breaks these turbulent eddies up such that you, you stop having a big eddy which goes from inside to outside to having a small eddy on the inside, a small eddy on the outside. And this is, you know, shearing away these eddies is one of the ways we try to reduce turbulence in the dokumala. Jason, you were kind of telling us two things there. You were saying that turbulence is a problem because it can bring this hot material from the centre out to the outside and you lose power. But then you also mentioned that it could possibly be used to kind of make it more efficient. And I think maybe that's related to something that Justin works on. Yeah, so I, I work... Um... I work uh, studying turbulence in tokamaks, and in particular, I'm looking at um, ways that you can use all of this turbulent activity, use all this energy in turbulence to actually fight the turbulence itself. So we've heard that uh, one one way to fight turbulence is to use to use this you know flow of air in in the example of the shop on a cold day, um, and so similarly, if you use a flow of plasma, then you can um, shear turbulent eddies and reduce them. And so I'm looking at a way that you can use the turbulence to create this flow of plasma in order to self-regulate the turbulence. Um, so you have turbulent eddies that are growing and getting more powerful, and they create this plasma flow, which then acts on the turbulence to, to stop it from growing. And the methods that all of you use to study the flow in these plasmas, how closely might they be related to methods that you know, mathematicians back in the 19th century were using to study ordinary flows of fluids of water and air? So depending on what kind of plasma physics you're looking at, you may use an extended version of the Navier-Stokes equations, which basically means you just add in external electromagnetic forces that come from the plasma. Um, just, just for our yeah. non-mathematical <laughs> listeners, so the Navier-Stokes equations are the, the classical analytic equations that govern uh, the flow of Newtonian liquids. So you're saying that some plasma physicists use that, but with a tweak. Exactly, yeah. And this type of kind of fluid approach can actually be very fruitful when you're trying to look at um, fusion plant design and trying to understand what kind of limits you can have in, in some cases. So it is very useful, um, but uh, there's another approach, which is, I think, probably a lot more popular um, nowadays, which is called the kinetic approach. Um, so basically, in that approach, we have some kind of mathematical function that, um, called a distribution function that looks at the number of particles per unit area, per unit velocity area. Um, and you can manipulate this in all kinds of interesting ways. And you can actually derive fluid mechanics from it as well, which is nice. So that's that's reassuring. Um, but there are also lots of um, additional subtle effects, um, like when you add magnetic fields, how particles orbit around it, for example, that fluid mechanics cannot predict. I think um, probably the big, one of the biggest examples of this is something called Lando damping, which is how electromagnetic waves can transfer energy to charged particles. Um, and using fluid mechanics, uh, like the Navier-Stokes equations, for example, you cannot predict this. You need to go to something called kinetic theory to predict this, um, and kinetic theory forms the backbone of lots of the supercomputer simulations we do and lots of the theory we do nowadays. Because it's a very computationally intensive theory. Exactly. You can't just run it on like your uh, just desktop computer and 
yeah, it requires, depending on what you're doing, maybe uh, hundreds or thousands of computing calls to, to be able to compute the solutions to your equations. We've talked a lot about this, these huge international academic collaborations like with ITER. Are the private sector getting involved? Are there any companies who are trying to make uh, nuclear fusion devices? Yeah, so there's there's a number of uh, of private fusion enterprises that have uh, come up in the last maybe 15, 15 or so years with with varying degrees of reputability. Um, so so some of them really seem you know very out of this world, not really connected to reality. Um, but there are you know a good number of increasingly uh, scientifically rigorous ones. So. Some of the companies have started publishing in, in peer-reviewed journals, which is encouraging. Most of them choose a scheme that's different than the mainstream scientific community, simply because they don't typically have the resources to, to compete with devices like Eater, for instance. And, you know, a lot of these a lot of these configurations, a lot of these ideas are speculative, but that doesn't mean that they're not worth exploring. So uh the, the private fusion industry has an interesting relationship with the, the mainstream scientific community, the mainstream academic community, in that they're generally trying more fringe ideas that the, the mainstream community has kind of cast off. But it's really, in a lot of cases, it's very difficult to prove that these ideas won't work. And there still is merit to exploring them, right? Um, the main thing that annoys um, academic researchers about some of these private enterprises is they make they tend to make very grandiose claims. So, you know, the academic community has been working on this for 50 years and then some new startup company says they're going to solve the problem in five and don't really give scientific data supporting this claim. It uh, rubs people the wrong way. Well, I can imagine. So we're coming to the end of our time here, but you know, it's, it's time to put our chips on the table, as it were. So, you know, in as measured a way as we can possibly be, do you feel that at this stage any sensible timeline can be put on when a viable self-sustaining nuclear fusion reactor will be built? Or do you feel there are still so many difficulties that need to be overcome that that's just not, not a good question to ask? Yeah, stick my head out. <laughs> <laughs> take Maybe take that out. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I would say actually getting to a commercially viable fusion reactor there is some time dependency in there, but I would actually say a lot of it is funding dependent. So it's not a timing dependent question, it's a funding dependent question. Um, obviously there are some constraints, we couldn't do it tomorrow if we were given $100 trillion, but I do think that given historic funding levels for fusion have not really lived up to what lots of people expected and hoped in the field, I think we've made remarkable progress. Um, I would also add that at current funding levels, kind of 2050 is, I think, a fairly reasonable timeline for when people are saying the first economically competitive fusion reactor will come on board. I think if funding were increased uh, substantially, I think we could probably do it, you know, quite a bit faster. Um, but I'm not quite, I'm not sure if that's going to happen. Well, thank you very much for joining me. It feels uh, a privilege to feel at the cutting edge of physical endeavour. Um, I hope you've enjoyed listening, and please join us next time on In Our Spare Time. <laughs>